This podcast is brought to you by the new book, The Heart of the Cross, by Dr. James Boyce and Dr. Philip Riken. Available now in a beautiful hardcover gift edition from PNR Publishing. Visit prpbooks.com and hear more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Natural revelation would be kind of like a work of art, all right? And then what you can learn from that work of art about the artist, that would be natural theology. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and colleague James Dulleso. James, how are you this morning? Doing great. Looking forward to our interview this morning. I am too. We have uh, Dr. David Haynes on the line. He is Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at VIU, Visiting Fellow at Davenant Hall, and Lecturer in Philosophy at University of Sherbrooke. And so, David, thank you for coming on. We want to discuss today your uh, most recent book, Natural Theology, A Biblical and Historical Introduction and Defense. So thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. I want to start just with a definition of terms, because natural theology may actually be something that some of our listeners are unfamiliar with or maybe have wrong ideas about. So can you briefly define uh, and distinguish what's meant by natural theology? And then, and then let's also include natural revelation, which might be a little more familiar term. Yeah, sure. So natural revelation would basically be uh, the entire cosmos, you might say. Uh, and then natural theology is what we learn from the cosmos about God. Two helpful ways that we can use to illustrate those definitions would be something along the following lines. Natural revelation would be kind of like a work of art, all right? And then what you can learn from that work of art about the artist, that would be natural theology. Or uh, we could say something like this, uh, natural revelation is to natural theology, what the scriptures are to biblical theology. It's kind of like a material that you have that you receive. It's, it's there, but you have to, you don't get systematic theology by just plopping a Bible on the table and saying, here's, here's your systematic theology. You have to read and you have to interpret. Uh, and then you learn things. And when you read the scriptures, you learn things about God. You learn things about yourself. You learn things about your relationship between you, yourself and many other things with natural theology. Uh, it's not written down, so it might be a little bit more difficult to get actual clear statements out of it. It's not like you can just quote natural revelation. Uh, so it's, it, it's going to be our reasoned observations about the cosmos, about the universe, about ourselves, about history even, human history. And then it's, it's our reasoned observations and what those things tell us about God. We also learn about ourselves. We learn about the cosmos. But natural theology, per se, is it, you might say it's a word about God based upon our reasoned observations from nature. And nature is natural revelation. David, I can almost anticipate just based on that very clean uh, layout of what natural revelation is to natural theology, how you'll respond to this question. But And I, I'm not asking to sort of go in depth or name names, but it has been floated recently that we can affirm natural revelation but that we need to reject natural theology. And I'm not sure if you've encountered or come across uh, that claim. And maybe this goes to another question I want to get at so you can sort of bring them together, which is, uh, 
in the last hundred years or so, a kind of rising opposition to the entire project of natural theology as a viable enterprise uh, for humans, not just for Reformed Christians or something like that. Um, and so maybe you could speak to that a little bit. What is the nature of the opposition to natural theology, particularly as it's emerged in the last hundred years in, in the Reformed world, both in Europe and the United States? Uh, and then maybe you can just on the tail end of that address this question of whether we should affirm natural revelation but reject natural theology. Yeah, sure. So within the last hundred years or so, uh, the two main reformed uh, schools that have really uh, opposed natural theology as a science have, have come from, uh, you might say, the school of, of Karl Barth, Barth Barthians, and uh, on the other hand, from, uh, you might say from North America, uh, the Vantillian school. Uh, so these are the two main groups that have been opposing natural theology. Uh, I suppose you might throw in atheists there as well. Uh, atheists also tend to say you can know nothing about God and okay. nature existence <laughs> from the nature. Because I can imagine Bardians and Vantillians not not appreciating being lumped in there, but uh, under under get covering all bases. Fair enough. <laughs> covering all bases, those would be the three main groups. And you're you're right; they probably wouldn't like being compared to atheists on that. Um, within reformed circles, one of the reasons why they reject that, I guess it comes from a number of different reasons, put it this way. Uh, sometimes they're going to say something like this. Well, uh, the, the so-called God of natural theology is not the triune God of scriptures. Therefore, it is necessarily a false God. Kind of an all or nothing. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's you've either, You either know everything about God or you know nothing about God, which if I could respond to that right away, it, it seems to not take into account how human knowledge functions and how we come to know things. So let's give, give an example. Let's say, uh, uh, James, you and I are you know, standing in a hallway and we're talking and we see an individual coming down the hallway towards us. Now, it's, the hallway is not fully lit. We, it, it's actually Jonathan coming to meet us. Now, we could probably guess that it's Jonathan because, hey, we're supposed to meet him here or something like that, right? Uh, but... We, didn't, we can't really see his face because he's in the dark. We just see an individual. Now, we know for a fact it's not a dog, right? We, we, we know for a fact it's not a giraffe. We know it's not a tree because trees don't walk. I mean, we can, we can come to all kinds of negative knowledge about what this is not that is coming towards us. Uh, we can also come to some positive knowledge. We, we are fairly certain it's a human. We're fairly certain, for example, it's a man. But the actual identity of the individual walking towards us will be hidden until all of a sudden he is fully revealed by the light. Those things that we know are, in fact, true, even if we don't know the identity of the, of, of the individual coming towards us. We suspect it may be Jonathan, but that's about all we'd have. And, and so if I could take that back and look at, for example, the early uh, pre-Socratics or Plato and Socrates and Aristotle who were writing, uh, doing philosophy and, and asking basically these simple questions about the cosmos, that is, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? Where does it all come from? Well, they were coming to these conclusions, which if we just look at them as Christians today, we'd say, well, they're wrong. Because they're saying that some divine principle uh, brought into being the cosmos, but that principle could in some cases be equated with the cosmos, so a form of pantheism. But we'd also need to point out that they're not wrong when they say that there's a divine cause of the cosmos. So they may not know everything about it, but they know something that is true. 
And even among, maybe even among the philosophers, David, um, the, the ones who, and I, I'll, I'll not go with Justin Martyr here and sort of um, talk Plato into heaven for us. Um, <laughs> certainly not. But like even among, even among the philosophers, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that in their um, attempts at natural theology, that some arrived more closely to the truth than others? Thales is looking for a first principle of an absolute first cause. That's sort of what natural theology does in its hardcore yep. is it is seeking to identify and, and seek out the first cause of all things. But the answers given and the characteristics identified vary even among ancient Greek philosophers. Yes, absolutely. And as Christians, what are yep. we to make of that? Well, I think, I think, first of all, I, I would tend to congratulate them, if I could put it that way. It's like, good job, guys. You did pretty well. I don't know if I would have done that well without Revelation. And, you know, so and we're, not suggesting, we're not suggesting that these were um, Christians before Christ or no. that they were somehow. So we'll, we'll, let me save that question for a moment. The question about salvific knowledge. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll sideline that for just a moment. Um, so you would congratulate them for as much as their contemplations achieved. Sure. And, and then I would also say something, if I put it this way, I'd also go with the reformers on this. And, and the reformers had various ways of, of talking about them. So for example, Vermigli, actually uh, one of the, one, a very early uh, 15, uh, 16th century reformed theologian, Vermigli actually um, criticized them saying they had all this knowledge about God, but rather than make it public so that everybody would know, hey, stop worshiping polytheism, they kept it for themselves. So they're actually guilty of not spreading this knowledge. You know, so he that's a brilliant. That's a brilliant critique. He it's doesn't brilliant. deny what they achieve, but he's but he still uh, still finds uh, the the fault. Exactly. Uh, also, I, want, I think that we as Christians can say, well, it, it, this actually gives me something that I can use with my friend who gives no uh, credence to scriptures. They look at the scriptures as nothing more than myths, and so I can actually meet them and use reason. And, and observe the universe and demonstrate that there must be a divine cause for the universe. And so I can use it in my evangelism. And that's also how the Reformed theologians used it. But the Reformed theologians also pointed out another fact. that They also said that this knowledge of God uh, was not sufficient. We're going to talk about maybe the salvific part not too long. It wasn't sufficient to save, but it was sufficient to condemn. Uh, that is, even when you read the pre-Socratics, and this is, this is usually one of the fun parts or the, or the humorous parts when I'm teaching my students and we're moving through the pre-Socratics, uh, is that you, you realize that the pre-Socratics were already saying that this God that is the cause of the entire cosmos is worthy of worship, should be prayed to. And in the case of Xenophanes, we need to pray to him to ask him to help us to become just. So... When, when the early reformers, such as Richard Hooker, uh, Henry Bull Heinrich Bullinger, when they say things like that the, the early uh, Greek philo philosophers not only knew that God existed, they knew something of the nature of God, they, they, they will also add in, they knew that he needed to be worshipped. When they say those things, they're right. And that is sufficient knowledge to condemn them because though they knew those things, they didn't. In fact, they worshipped the creation. As Romans one says, David, I I, I want to just expand on that slightly, and 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 this historical point that you've made. And again, uh, we don't have time to be exhaustive on this, but it sounds like one of the one of the key points that you want to emphasize is that 
the modern or the last you know hundred years rejection of natural theology is not actually what the mainstream of the Reformed tradition would themselves, it's not how they would articulate things. I mean, you're quoting from all kinds of Reformation and post-Reformation sources who are very comfortable, not just with the idea of natural revelation, but with doing natural theology. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we see that even in, even in Calvin's Institutes. Uh, one, of my, one of the most interesting quotes I find in, in Calvin is, is when he says uh, that there is a common way between both the regenerate and the unregenerate to come to knowledge of God. And that is by following his traces in the heavens and on earth. That is by recognizing in the work of God, the marks of the worker, or in the, in the painting, you see the, the strokes of the artist. And Calvin's saying there, we recognize this. And it's not just Calvin. I mean, it becomes very, very clear that the early reformers uh, from the beginning of from the 1500s all the way through to the end of the 1700s and into the into the 1800s, they almost I can't say unanimously, but they almost were unanimously affirming not only that you can know that God exists by observing nature, but that that actually has use. That, that, that has use for the pastor, for example. Stephen Sharnock will actually use natural theology in his sermons to motivate his parishioners to abandon practical atheism, to motivate them to worship God. That's compelling. And we're nearing the end. Let me say a couple things. This is, I know you feel, David, we just got you warmed up and now we're throwing the ice water on you. But let me, let's, let's say a couple things about this um, sort of on, on the way out. Are the main objections of the last couple hundred years, uh, maybe hundred years really, the incompleteness objection that this God is not the triune God who sent forth his son in the fullness of time, at least uh, I guess what, you, what you'd want to say is, no, it is that God, but it's not identified as that God. Uh, yep. And so that maybe goes to the second question. And this knowledge doesn't save. Yep. Uh, and that's a, I've heard that critique often, which is you could know these things and still go to hell. Absolutely. And, and yet maybe speak to that really quick in terms of is salvation the end game of natural theology? Well, I suppose I, I might. Well, say let's put it this way: salvation serves the end of it, which is to worship Him and glorify Him. And okay, granted, maybe that was a bad setup. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of natural theology itself, let's just go pre-redemptive for a moment. Yeah, um, yeah. B- before the fall, before the revelation of redemption, does natural theology have an intelligible end? Well, some of the reformers would say yes. Uh, I, I think of Vermigli, who who explicitly says that the purpose of natural theology is that man would know God. Now, now, of course, we have to say, and I, I think Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 are very clear. Uh, though man does know these things and can come to know them, they don't save him. We, I, we cannot deny that. On the other hand, when you look at Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, what is striking is the answer to the question, for what is man condemned? Is he condemned because he does not know Christ? And if we read Romans 1, chapter 1 and chapter 2, he is condemned not because of what he does with Christ, but because of what he does with the knowledge which is available to him. So the pagan is actually condemned not because he rejected Christ, but because he knows that God is, knows something of him, knows that he should be worshipped. And rather than worshipping God and doing what God requires of him, natural law, rather than doing those things, he rejects them. He does evil. He, re- he worships creation rather than the creator. So he's condemned for what he should be able to do with the knowledge which is given to him. 
Can natural theology or natural law save? The answer is no. And Paul's point is, look around you. Nobody was ever saved because of natural theology or natural law. That's just a fact. And we, we, and we should add that we should add that that was never the even even in the hands of the reformed uh, yeah. or or frankly of the medievals and fathers that that was never a, a stated um, it was never claimed to be sufficient for that. Never. No, no one has ever said that. I, I I have I have read through everybody I could find, and no one has ever ever admitted or or even suggested that it was sufficient to save. Good. I think that's. I think that that will um, ho- hopefully help some people to kind of revisit the theme of natural theology as something that still has a, a purpose and even a use for us um, as believers. Um, we didn't get to some of the texts, so you alluded to some of them: Romans one text, uh, and then uh, and Psalm nineteen and other sort of key texts of Scripture. Um, David, maybe on our way out, we would be happy to recommend and do recommend, we'll give away some copies of your book on natural theology. Is there another source or two that you might recommend to interested uh, listeners who might want to pursue this a bit further? I know I sprung that on you and didn't give you time to uh, review your own well, bibliography. Well, you know, while you're thinking, while you're thinking about that, can I ask another kind of ending wrap up sure. question uh, yes. for David? Give me the, the kind of elevator speech here. If, if it's the case, we all acknowledge that um, natural theology doesn't obviously give you everything that the scriptures do. Um, why wouldn't someone then say, well, you know what, then, then why bother? Why not? We have the Bible. So why not just start there, end there, live there, meditate on that? I mean, why would I pick up a book on natural theology or, or, or to James's question, two or three others, when in fact what I have is scripture? Sure. Uh, that's, I, I'm going to, first of all, say that's a whole other can of worms. Uh, we could do a whole other 15, 20, half an hour on that. But in answer to that question, I can, I can also give you a resource to go look at. So yeah. it's like the second book I quote, or at least it's the second footnote that I quote in the book. It's James Barr, Biblical Faith and Natural Theology. This is written by a theologian, a biblical scholar, who used to be a Bartian uh, theologian. And he argues one of the answers that I would provide for you to that question you just asked. That is, we do have the scriptures, but when we come to the scriptures, we come to the scriptures with a number of concepts and notions already determined in our minds about what God is. In fact, the early Greek theologians, the, the, the great Cappadocian fathers, already noticed this. Augustine already talks about this. The idea that the Bible doesn't come with an inspired and infallible lexicon or dictionary which tells you this is what these terms mean and this is how you should interpret scriptures. In fact, the early church fathers often said when they read the Bible, they said something like this, well, we know that God cannot be like this. Therefore, when we read that God repented of having created man, we know that it is not saying, quite literally, God repented of having created man. So one of the really strong, uh, important reasons to understand a little bit of natural theology is that it is a type of natural knowledge that we use when we come to scriptures. In the same way, when we read or, or we understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God, we know what a lamb is. First of all, and then we, when we read about how it was used in the sacrifices, we know that this is a lamb, like we know this thing, and then how it's used, and then we can apply this to Christ. Well, that word lamb is based upon our natural knowledge 
of reality. And I would suggest that one of the uses of natural theology is to help us better understand the divine nature and how it's described for us in scriptures. That's a great way of explaining it. And, uh, and thanks as well for the book recommendation. David, we've asked you to do something impossible today, but we really appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate you giving us this time. We appreciate your work on this book, your ongoing scholarship. So, so thanks. Thank you for, for coming, coming on today. Hey, my pleasure. James, I felt um, guilty asking him that question that opened up the can of worms at the end, but what an important topic and, um, and just a, a fine book. So we would, we would commend it to our readers. Is there anything you would want to add? In, 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 this, is, this is more your wheelhouse than mine in terms of the, the importance of being a Christian who thinks in terms of natural revelation and natural theology. Well, I think it, it does come down to an issue. I mean, to do the Romans 1, uh, 20 passage, I mean, the, God speaks to us of himself through the things that are made, and he speaks uh, clearly and authoritatively. And there are certain things we can know perhaps almost immediately, other things we arrive at by a kind of more reasoned argument. Um, but at the same time, there is a the scriptures places a moral obligation on man with regard to these truths. And David was right to say that the end of worship and the giving to him the honor and glory that is due to him based upon the revelation that he's made of himself, that's that's really what the goal of natural theology is, not to displace the scriptures or not to offer a, a different soteriology or a soteriology at all as such. We get that only in the gospel of Christ Jesus, um, but to say that there is a way in which this can convict men of sin uh, for sure, the scriptures are explicit, but also if you go to like Genesis 19, or I'm sorry, Psalm 19, I think the psalmist is, he's juxtaposing the heavens that declare his glory and the day-to-day uh, pouring forth speech, night-to-night revealing knowledge. And then he juxtaposes that in the second half of Psalm 19 to a, to a person who is in fact disobedient and in sin. And at the end, when David says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, I think there's a, there's a, a kind of wrapping up where he's saying, don't let me be outdone by the unintelligent creation in the giving you of praise. And there's a sort of motivation, even in natural theology, to sort of get your heart in tune with the rest of creation and tell his glory. Um, and so I, I would say, if you need someone to make the case for you that scripture both affirms this and then some of the his, sort of historical nuances of how it's been held, David's done a great work um, putting that together in this, in this uh, small readable book. Yeah, that's, that's really well put. I want to underscore again, one of the, one of the things that he said, which is that in point of fact, this does condemn those who are outside of Christ um, because, because the record of all of human history is that they do uh, reject this and serve the creature rather than the creator. So he, he did make that point, and I think, I think it's, it's, it's worth making again. But, um, but nonetheless, everything you said, uh, that's really well put. That uh, application from the psalm is, is great stuff. Well, James, we are out of time, but we want to commend this book to our listeners. If you'd like an opportunity to win a copy of this book, Natural Theology, A Biblical and Historical Introduction and Defense by David Haynes, it's not a particularly long book, I would say. Um, you know, some of these can get, be, be weighty, and this is under 200 pages. 
So I think many would find it very accessible. You can go to the placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. There'll be a, a, a link there for you to enter your information for the chance to win a couple of copies of, the, of this book. Um, and, and if you're able to donate or, or if you're able to spread the word, give us a review on Apple Podcasts, all of those things are very much appreciated. You can donate at placefortruth.org or, or alliancenet.org. Uh, we couldn't do this without the generosity of, of many listeners. So thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Discover the power of the gospel in the new book, The Heart of the Cross, from PNR Publishing. In 21 brief readings, pastor theologians James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Riken expound the Bible's teaching about the cross, from Jesus' words during the crucifixion to his words after the resurrection, to the vital teaching on the cross and the rest of the New Testament. The authors meet the troubled, skeptical, and restless in these pages, and with insights both simple and profound, draw each one of us to Christ. This beautiful hardcover gift book is available now wherever Christian books are sold. PNR Publishing, Reformed Theology for Real Life. Visit prpbooks.com to learn more.